And now, on this Labor Day weekend, we present a troubling story. It began 75 years ago, during a long strike in the coal fields of southern Illinois. Throughout history, coal strikes have been legendary for their bitterness and frequently for their violence. Many live on in songs and stories and plays and books and movies, but this is the story of one battle that many people would rather forget, and it has left a disturbing and unresolved legacy. Produced by Gary Cavino and narrated by James Ballou, this is the account of what happened when two groups of workers fought each other for the right to tear a hard black rock from the ground. This is the story of the Heron Massacre. My name is Jim Ballou. I'm 63 years old. I'm a teacher and a writer, and I come from a town called Heron. Heron is in Williamson County, near the southern tip of Illinois. This is coal country. Actually, it used to be coal country. Almost all the mines are closed now. Today, it's a scenic tourist area, and if you're just passing through, you might never know that once the rhythms of life here were determined by the mines. Whenever I visit Heron now, I always stop first at the home of my favorite aunt. My name is Opal Dillard Maynard. I am, I'm right now 85 years old. I've lived here in Heron most of my life, born and raised here in Heron. Had a very eventful life. Aunt Opal lives in a tidy, well-kept house in the old residential section of Heron. Her home is full of happy memories, and my aunt's recollections of the town itself the way it was many decades ago, are fond ones, too. Well, Main Street was nice, wide street, and at that time we had a, a trolley car. That was the finest road in the country then. Everybody then, they went to town in the evenings. Everybody walked up and down the streets, said hello to everybody else, and uh, visited. I think it's just a good town to grow in. I share my aunt's memories, but I also can recall other things, like the slag heaps on the edge of town, huge mounds of sulfurous-smelling coal waste, how the walls and ceilings in our houses were always shifting and cracking. They were built over old mine shafts, and when the wooden supports would rot and shift deep below the ground, everything on top of them would move too. Today we call this subsidence. If you own a house in Heron, you have to buy insurance against it. It hasn't been long since we had a big mine subsidence right on the west of town here. A very good friend of mine lived there, and they had to hurry to get the kids out of the basement. It just, just collapses. You know, you kind of wonder about your own place here. Is, <laughs> is it going to fall down? <laughs> Those old mines aren't all that's buried under the pleasant landscape of my hometown. In fact, an event that took place 75 years ago shaped this place as much as those forgotten tunnels, as much even as the deep seams of coal that brought people here in the first place. One hot summer morning in June of 1922, my Uncle Paul, the man who later became Opal's husband, stood on the porch of this house and watched as six men, roped together, beaten and bloody, were dragged by a frenzied mob down this street to their deaths. What he saw that day was just one incident in what came to be known as the Heron Massacre, 
one of the most terrible episodes in America's bloody labor history in which 20 strikebreakers were butchered by furious Union miners. Near the front door of Aunt Opal's house is a framed portrait of a young miner in his work clothes, staring straight at the camera, his lantern cap on his head and his lunch bucket hung on his arm. That's Otis Maynard, Paul's father, my grandfather. I never knew him. He died in his 40s from lung disease. I've since learned that my grandfather was one of the many people indicted after the massacre, although his case never went to trial. I didn't know that when I was young. I never knew there had been a mass killing in my town until I was older and far away in college. My grandfather's role, whatever it was, remained shrouded in the absolute silence that descended over Heron in the wake of the massacre. On this trip to Heron, as I have for more than 40 years, I am trying to find out more about what happened back then and to comprehend why. Just a block or so from my aunt's home is Margaret's, a boarding house for elderly men and women. One rainy afternoon, I met there with Josephine Downs, Jane Brusati, Lena Meadows, and Rose McCall, lovely women in their 80s and 90s, from coal mining families. To begin to understand the Heron Massacre, you have to know how harsh the lives of miners once were. These four ladies have no trouble remembering what their husbands and their fathers went through. They just knew coal mining, mm -hmm. and they were good at it, and they worked hard. Well, our dads used to have to have a pick and break the coal with the pick. They had to load all the coal by hand and break it up, you know. It was rough. And made very little money doing that. <laughs> They'd come in from work, so tired, they'd almost have to lay down to rest before they'd eat supper. It was really rough. And those days, they took their bath in the kitchen in the wintertime or behind a stove. <laughs> when they turned one way, they'd burn one cheek, and when they turned the other way, they burnt the other one. <laughs> and then, well, they just had to get up early the next morning and go again. It was rough. It was hard on us kids, too, to watch them do that. And I used to feel so sorry for my dad. It was hard on him. He was a good man. He's in heaven now. It wasn't just hard work. Mining was extremely dangerous, and every day on the job was a gamble. The women at Margaret's boarding house remember that, too. I lived on Main Street where the ambulance would go by. And whenever the ambulance would go by, we'd all run out in the street to remember that and ask who was hurt. And it was a sad thing. It was, we always had that fear. If somebody was killed in the mine, then the whistle would blow about three times and they knew somebody was killed. Everybody was afraid it was their husband, or it was their dad. And boy. My husband worked in the mines, and he fell, and he broke his pelvis bone. He was on crutches for seven months and out of work. We didn't get one penny. There were no benefits at that time. 
none whatever. So <laughs> that's what I remember about coal mining days. Life in coal mining had always been nasty, brutish, and short. Those who owned coal mines did not care about the miners, about their welfare, about their security, not really whether they lived or died. John Simon is a professor of history at Southern Illinois University in nearby Carbondale. He says that because the pay and the working conditions were so bad, Williamson County had a long history of conflict in the coal fields. By the 1920s, all the miners in Southern Illinois, some 30,000 of them, belonged to the United Mine Workers of America, the UMWA, and their loyalty to their union can only be described as fierce. When the union had come in, it had uh, brought in a better way of life for many people and it had not come without difficulty, without strife. And the union became as important to many of the miners as their religion was, or perhaps even more important than their uh, religion, because it guaranteed them a living. Without it, there was nothing. And if the union was like a religion, then whoever might threaten it was simply evil. To the miners, the greatest threats even more than the mine owners, perhaps, were the strike breakers. Today, they're politely called replacement workers. Back then, the language was more graphic. They were known as scabs. Yes, scabs are dirty words. It sure is. Sure is. It's fighting words, See, calling anybody like a scab. Yeah, if, any, if you call anybody a scab, they're in here and they'll bust you one. <laughs> it's not a very good word to call someone. On April 1st, 1922, John L. Lewis, the new dynamic leader of the Mine Workers Union, called a nationwide strike. The miners around Heron walked out too. As the strike dragged on into the summer, those who could took odd jobs, while the rest did their best to feed their families from their gardens and nearby fishing holes. They had gone through lean strike times before, but they took comfort in knowing that Williamson County was the most militantly pro-union region in the country, that no mine owner would dare try to break their strike. But 1922 was different. There was something new in the area right on the outskirts of Heron, a strip mine where the coal was scooped out of the ground from the surface. And that mine was owned by William Lester, a brash, headstrong businessman from Cleveland. Historian John Simon. In the Heron Massacre, uh, Lester is the great villain, but he's really a small fish. He is a mine entrepreneur who doesn't have much capital, who is in probably way over his head with this Southern Illinois Coal Company, and then finds himself caught up in a uh, national strike. Lester was up against the wall, and it was either shipped that coal or lose the mine, and he made the decision he was born to make, and it was a terrible decision. Despite repeated warnings from state and local officials, Lester decided to break the strike and ship his coal. On June 13th, he fired all his local employees and brought in 50 men from Chicago, some of them recruited literally from off the streets. Half of them were brought in to run the machinery or to cook for the other workers. The rest were gun-toting guards from private security agencies 
the type that had often terrorized mining families during other strikes in other places. As superintendent, Lester brought in C.K. McDowell, who had a reputation for being militantly anti-union. On June 16th, the first railroad cars full of coal left the Lester mine. Anger and outrage spread through the area like wildfire. Well, their feelings more or less was all, all the same. Hell, it was a matter of life and death or a matter of survival back in 1922 to the old miners around here and here. You let one scab move in, it's just like a cancer. It just keeps spreading. And that's why they was fighting out here at Lester Strip. They was trying to nip it in a bud, you might say. That was Joe Schumach, who was once a board member of the United Mine Workers in the Heron area. He was interviewed for a documentary produced in 1978 at WSIU, the public radio station in nearby Carbondale. Although Schumach himself wasn't present at the Heron massacre, he knew many people who had been, and his words about strike breakers were an echo of what he had heard from older miners. You might say actually they were taking their bread away from these miners' children. And uh, that's pretty hard to take. It's just human nature. When somebody tries to take your living away from you, you're going to fight. Even a wild animal will do that. That's true, because that's the way the parents felt about it. They were taking food away from their families. It was the truth, wasn't it? It was the truth. That's the way we felt about that's it. That's the way we felt. We didn't have anything to eat that day. It was bad. <laughs> See, these miners just went kind of haywire because they had been out of work for so many months and their children were going hungry. And they just, well, they just lost it. By the 20th of June, the streets of Heron were teeming with hundreds of angry miners. The next day, they held what they called an indignation meeting, and one of the speakers read a telegram from John L. Lewis, the leader of the UMW. The workers at the Lester Strip mine were nothing more than ordinary strikebreakers, Lewis said, and that's how they should be treated. If the union men were looking for an excuse to fight, they now had it. This miner was interviewed for the WSIU documentary, but refused to give his name. He was on the scene in 1922. Right there was a hardware store, and down the street was a hardware store, and they went in and uh, got all their shotguns and rifles, took them. So Said, even charge it to the miners. They, uh, they, uh, I went saw out 26 carloads. I saw this pass right by here at about. 7 o'clock at night, went out there and stayed all night. Standing near the site of the old Lester Strip mine now, you'd never know that once this was a battleground. The 50 strikebreakers inside the mine were surrounded by 500 armed Union miners and sympathizers from town, and there was no one to stop it. The county sheriff, who was running for public office, found an excuse not to be anywhere near this area until it was all over. The first shots supposedly came from within the mine. Then both sides let loose. Before long, three Union men were fatally shot. But as the firing went on and on all through the day and night of June 21st, as thousands of bullets smashed into their barricades, it became clear to the strikebreakers that they had to surrender. A deal was negotiated, 
At daybreak on June 22nd, the strikebreakers would come out under a white flag. They'd be marched to the railroad line and sent back to Chicago. They did come out and surrendered to the Union miners. They had gone just a little ways towards Heron when one man waved his revolver and yelled, the only way to free the county of strikebreakers is to kill them all off and stop the breed. Moments later, C.K. McDowell, the hated superintendent, was taken down a side road and shot dead. The killing had begun. The rest of the strikebreakers were lined up near a barbed wire fence that bordered the nearby woods and then told to run for their lives. Behind them, the mob opened fire. As they fled in terror, many of the captives got caught in the fence and were riddled with bullets. The others, not knowing where they were, ran desperately through the dense underbrush towards Heron, a mile to the north. They didn't know what the hell to do. They was determined to kill them, which they finally did, of course. Killed that body. <clears throat> were people, maybe not yourself, but other just civilians, not miners, not That's Union miners? There. there was about, I'll say, a thousand or... How did you feel about it? How did you feel? Did well, you feel I, hell, I couldn't say anything. I didn't like it. Hell, I was out there at the soul there, and people get killed. It's like killing dogs. I was right there close as four, five, six feet from it. When I was a kid, Harrison's Woods on the south edge of Heron was a sanctuary. I remember smoking catalpa here and cutting sassafras roots to make tea with. I couldn't have known that I was playing near a tree where one strike breaker was hanged and three others were shot dead at his feet. My grandfather Otis is reported to have walked out of these woods on the day of the killings and to have said to the owner of the land, do not go in there for I have talked to these men and they have told me to stand aside. I've often wondered what exactly he meant by that and I've wondered what role, if any, he had in this part of the massacre. If he ever said anything about that day to any of my relatives, those words were never repeated to me. The final brutal act took place here, at the Heron City Cemetery. Around noon on the day of the massacre, a large crowd gathered around six men, the same men my Uncle Paul had seen from his front porch earlier in the day. Roped together, beaten, pitifully weak, now they were shot. Then, as they lay on the ground, one man stepped out of the crowd, pulled out a pocket knife, and methodically slit each of their throats. By now, the land around Heron was littered with the dead and the dying. Everywhere, people gathered to gawk and to taunt. Wyatt Norton is now 89 years old. He took me to the exact spot about a mile from the mine where the barbed wire fence had been and the strikebreakers had tried to run away under a hail of bullets. Well, I was 15 years old at the time. And I came over because my dad brought me over here. He knew what was going on and he knew a lot of the people involved. So he just decided to drive over here and see about it, which we did. And the men that were here, the, 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 the so-called strike breaker, most of them were shot, either shot or dead, laying out here dead right in this area. The one guy that I remember so well, a lady asked, a lady carrying this child, 
and she was questioning him, told him he had no business out here to begin with, and uh, she finally said, where are you shot? And he pointed crosswise across his stomach, made a gesture. I don't believe he could talk. A lot of them were begging for water, and I didn't see anybody give them any water. They were begging, begging for water, but nobody offered them any. They just let them lay there and die. I was affected by that for a long, long time. Practically ruined what good disposition I had, if I had any. And the memory of seeing an old fellow shot and begging for water, and the woman carrying the baby and not expressing any sympathy for him. I didn't know anybody could be that hard-hearted the way she was, calling them scabs and all that. It affects you so you can't sleep at night a lot of times, thinking about it, how horrible it was. That's really about all I can truthfully remember. The Dillard Building is still here, at the corner of Monroe and North 14th Streets in downtown Heron. After the massacre, the empty ground floor was a convenient place for a makeshift morgue. The bodies of 19 dead strikebreakers were laid out in neat rows. Almost everyone in town came through to view the corpses. Some to gaze quietly, others to curse the dead men or spit on them. Many parents brought their children along. Lots of kids came on their own, like the women who live now at Margaret's boarding house. I guess there was very few kids that didn't go see him. I did too. I, I did went to too. see him. I went to I see every too. one of them. Mm-hmm. They laid it out on a concrete floor. All them dead men, they were shot, you know, yeah. and oh, it was pitiful because some of them were so badly mangled, I thought, their faces and all. I wasn't proud of it at all. No, I never dreamed it was anything like that. And always stayed on my mind, there was one man laying there. There he lays there dead, and he had his fist up like this, and that's all I could see. And this is the way it was, his fist. And that stayed on my mind for so long, and I wouldn't—I was afraid to go to bed at night. I had to sleep with my mother because I was so scared. And I, my mother said I talked in my sleep all night long because it was so—it was I, th- that stayed with me so long. It did you too, didn't it? Yeah, but I didn't talk about it after I got home. I knew better. Well, it was a very sad thing. Oh, it was a sad thing. I wasn't proud of it at all. Mm-mm. By now, the Heron Massacre was national news, and in distant towns, editorial writers denounced the killings as hideous, bestial horrors. Heron, Illinois, should be ostracized, wrote one, shut off from all communication with the outside world and the people there left to soak in the blood they have spilled. President Warren Harding called it a shocking crime, barbarity, butchery, wrought in madness. Eventually, there were two trials, but the results were predictable. A parade of witnesses took the stand and perjured themselves to provide alibis for the accused. The juries were made up of local people. Their verdicts were unanimous. All of the defendants were found not guilty. The prosecutors then gave up and dismissed all the remaining indictments, including one for murder against my grandfather. Another wave of national revulsion descended on the town and its people, but the citizens of Heron responded to it all with a collective stony silence. Even those who, like Wyatt Norton, 
had been appalled and troubled by what had happened, kept their emotions to themselves. I felt real sad with what I saw out there and what they were doing, but I wouldn't mention that to nobody. I don't care how you felt personally about it. You didn't talk to anybody because they allowed to tell some of these men about it, and they'll come around and beat you down. It wasn't a safe place to be, even for the residents. It was into this atmosphere, this fearful solidarity, that my generation was born. We explored and played games on the very ground where blood had flowed and never knew it. We sometimes met killers on the street or in the shops and never knew it. We worshipped in church with neighbors who had stood by and done nothing to stop the killers. And we never knew that either. It was all under the surface, buried under decades of practiced quiet. Finally, in 1952, a new book called Bloody Williamson by the noted historian Paul Engel told the definitive story of the Heron Massacre. It was then that I learned that the full legacy of my origins in Heron had been denied to me. But except to criticize the book and its author, people in Heron at the time had little else to say. The silence held. Since then, I've searched for meaning, for explanations, for conclusions, in fragments of obscure writing, scattered newspaper clippings, that one old radio documentary. In that tape, at least, we can hear the preserved words of the few people who were willing to talk. Almost all of them were still militant in their defiance. Joel Shoemake was typical. Depends on which side of the fence you're on. If you're a, if you're a union man, you're not going to condemn the action. If you're an anti-union man, which we have plenty of them around here, then they're going to do anything to try to make the union look bad. To me, a guy like that is a son of a bitch. You can put that on air, too, if you want to. One of the few who was willing to speak against the majority sentiment was Dan Malkovich. He was from the nearby town of Benton, an author and magazine publisher. I think that was a disgraceful incident in southern Illinois history. I think the people who perpetrated it were, were not very decent people. They were animal, and they were unforgivable. But always, in response, would come the answer, in the voice of the tough, unrepentant miner. If it, ha if it hadn't been for what happened back in the 20s, which uh, some of my folks, Ken folks, were involved in it, uh, I don't think you'd have any union around here at this time coal miners or any other kind of a union. That's what makes your union, is believing in it and willing to fight for it. It's just like fighting for your country. There are no memorials or markers anywhere in Heron to commemorate what happened 75 years ago. And it's not likely that there will be any, at least not anytime soon. So much has been invested here, after all, in not remembering. There are still living memorials in town, of course. The people old enough to have some real connection to the events of 1922. But in a few years, they too will all be gone, and they'll take with them whatever meaning they've been able to find. To the ladies in Margaret's boarding house today, it's a feeling of humanity for the hated scabs of yesteryear, and a real sense of the tragedy in one group of workers being pitted against another. Probably these scabs needed the money, too, and they didn't know just how bad what they were getting into. 
My understanding was when they came in here that they was men that was out of work and was offered work here. They didn't know that they was going to break a strike, that they were strike breakers. That's right. They needed work, and they was offered work here, and they didn't tell them what to do. When they came in here, they just got And they were glad to do the work. That's right. Somebody looking for work. Because they didn't know what they were doing. That's right. And that's what made me feel so bad about it, because they just walked right into it. I said, I think they should look at it, and I think they should all got together and come to a good understanding mm-hmm. instead of going to the extremes. That's what they should have done. Mm-hmm. Talked it out. One of my old childhood friends is Jim Norton. He's the son of Wyatt, who saw the terrible scenes of dying men as a teenager and never talked about it. Like me, Jim has lived most of his adult life away from Heron and never knew about the massacre while he was growing up. He, too, has been troubled by what he's learned since. As we know, there are two sins, essentially, commission and omission. And the ones who did the killing certainly were the sins of commission. But those who sat silently, quietly, and did not stand and be counted committed the sin of omission. And that is bothersome that a whole town would do that. You would think that someone in the town or five someones or ten someones would come forward and say, we're not putting up with this. But no one did. If anyone learned a lesson, and it's certainly not for me to say, but it, perhaps our generation was able to use that in a positive fashion and at least say what happened was wrong and we're not going to ever do that again. Now whether we've said that in so many words I have no way of knowing, but I would like to think that we thought that. At the end of this visit to Heron, leaving my aunt's house, I take one last look at that portrait of my grandfather Otis near the door. Now, to me, he looks like a warrior wearing his work clothes like battle gear. He holds his dinner bucket like a weapon. He looks determined, his eyes flint, his lips unsmiling, aware of life and impending death. And I think of the words of a poem I wrote years ago that I dedicated to both my grandfathers who were miners. The holes you made like yourselves are collapsing inward. Whole towns rest within the graves you dug. You were the miner deep in the pit whom no one knew. You a shade in a blackened world that I see too. I see too. The Heron Massacre was narrated by James Ballou and produced by Gary Cavino. The editor was Dan Collison. The Heron Massacre was originally broadcast on member station WBEZ in Chicago. Special thanks to Kurt Billig and Steve James for permission to use excerpts from their documentary, A Time We Forgot. And for this evening, that's All Things Considered. Tonight's program was directed by Fred Wasser and edited by Marcus Rosenbaum. Our show is produced by Rebecca Davis with Devar Ardalan, Tracy Wall, and Catherine Simmons. Barbara Reem is the assistant managing editor. Kim Molesky, our reference librarian. The technical director is Paris Morgan. And I'm Daniel Zwerdling. Thanks for joining us for All Things Considered. Mm-hmm.